Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. Josh, uh, come on out here. Uh, come on out here for a minute. There's someone out here who wants to see you. It, it's your mom. She's the only one who wants to see you. The only one who wants to talk to you is your mom, Josh. The only person who talks to you outside of this podcast is your mom. <laughs> Thank you. I like that you managed to do an impression from the movie and insult me all in one there. It's really, uh, really efficient there. <laughs> well, you know, Josh, uh, I think we know what kind of impression we're all expecting. So I had to mix it up and bring out uh, another deep cut, the Charles Durning impression. I like mm -hmm. it. it was, it's a good, good impression, at least of the character that he plays in this movie. I don't know if Charles Durning is distinctive enough on his own to really have an impression to recognize, but I, you, you really captured that character here. I, I feel think. like, you know, Josh, between that and the Bruno S and the Alan Arkin, I am ready to stage a show um, that no one will ever come to. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll check it out. I'm looking forward to it. So, uh, just make sure you bring your mom, Josh. She's the only one who wants to go. Yeah, my mom would love to see it too, I'm sure. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1975. And we're here at Jason's pick, which is uh, what, what do you want to tell us? All? What is your pick, Jason? You guys, I won Awesome Movie Year. So, um, you know, just uh, if you bet on me, then you won too. Because my pick was Dog Day Afternoon, a movie I haven't seen in many years, but uh, remember how awesome it was. And guess what? It's awesome still. It fits awesome movie year because it's an awesome movie. Uh, I think we all really enjoyed this movie. And um, yeah, this movie kicks ass, Josh. It does. It was a good pick. Very, uh, very strong choice there, Jason. Thank and you. I had actually seen it. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, that helps. I feel like you learned your lesson there maybe from that one. Yeah, now nah, I'll fly that close to the sun. Here. All right. That's fair. But yeah, this was a great, I mean, when we were looking at this year and what we would talk about, this was certainly a major movie that was something we would probably want to talk about in some way anyway. So I think it was great that you chose it. And uh, I was also really happy to revisit it. I hadn't seen it in a while, and I think I liked it even more this time. It's it's yeah, it's great. And it was very popular and successful at the time it came out, too. It grossed. Sometimes Wikipedia has these figures that are ranges, and I don't exactly know why, but between 50 and $56 million on its budget of between 3.5 and 3.8 million. So wherever it is in the range, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good result. Basically, it was somewhere in the, if in today's world, it would be $20 million budget and it would have returned about $304 million. Yeah, that's impressive. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen much anymore. If you make a movie at that level, it doesn't make that much at the box office. But this movie, from a time when that kind of stuff could be really successful financially, and it was also really highly acclaimed and awarded. It was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture. I think, weren't we saying, I think we're talking about almost all of the Best Picture nominees from this year over the course of this season. But uh, Best Picture, it was nominated for Best Director for Sidney Lumet. It was nominated for Best Actor for Al Pacino, Best Supporting Actor for Chris Sarandon, Best Editing for Dee Dee Allen, and it won the award for Best Original Screenplay for Frank Pearson, although I'm not sure why it's not a Best Adapted Screenplay because it's based on a magazine article, but I don't know how that works. 
Right. And Josh, uh, let's just go over this, uh, the murderer's row of like nominees this year. And I, I think, you know, as we kind of got into this season, we were saying like, we could make a case. This is maybe the best year for movies ever. So best picture, one flew over the cuckoo's nest one. We'll talk about that later this season. Barry Lyndon, Dog Day, Nashville, and Jaws. Best Director, Milos Foreman won. Sidney Lumet was nominated. Fellini for Amacord. Kubrick for Barry Lyndon in Nashville. Obviously, we know Spielberg was left out of that. And then you look at uh, Best Actor, Nicholson won. You had Pacino. You had Walter Matthau for Sunshine Boys. Maximilian Schell for The Man in the Glass Booth. And James Whitmore for Give Him Hell Harry. So just all crazy, Josh. Yes. Yeah, it's it's an amazing lineup there, especially for picture and director. I think some of those performances I'm not familiar with, but Pacino is fantastic in this movie. And if he didn't win, then well, if he he lost to Jack Nicholson, I suppose that's fair. <laughs> if he if he lost to one of those that I'd never heard of, I would say I absolutely have to watch those movies because they must be amazing or at least feature amazing performances because he is incredible in this film. Uh, other awards it was nominated for seven Golden Globes and six BAFTAs as well as I'm sure a bunch of other awards, but those are kind of the the headline awards that it got nominated for. And as I said, it was- Pacino and Dee Dee Allen both won the BAFTA that year. There you go. It didn't win any of the Golden Globes, uh, strangely, but certainly up there with the most highly awarded movies of the year. As I said, it was based on a magazine article, a Life magazine article called The Boys in the Bank by P.F. Klug and Thomas Moore which was about the real-life bank robbery that this film is based on, which was in 1972 in Brooklyn. Um, for whatever reason, they changed the name of the main guy, the character that Pacino plays, who is called Sonny Wartzik in this film. The actual guy's name is John Wadowitz. I don't know. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Well, I think it's like Wadowitz. There you go. John Wadowitz. Uh, Sal, Salvatore, Natural. Or naturile, I'm going to mispronounce Natural. Natural. I think it's an I there, though. No, this was not. Uh, not. Anyway. Normally, I, you're, I'm the one who butchers stuff. But, yeah. Sal, know. they use his real name. That's John Cazale's character, who is Sonny's partner in robbing this bank. And it was otherwise, uh, you know, the, 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 the facts are fairly close, it seems like. And all of these people were involved, including, interestingly enough, the hostages, all of these people that they take hostage in the bank, they got life rights from them. They paid them fees so that they could really get not only the main characters and these kind of larger than life robbers who people would remember maybe from the news coverage or from that magazine article, but all of the smaller players as well, which I thought was cool. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the best things about this movie is that such a strange relationship between Pacino and the hostages, right? Right. And they're very, they're distinctive characters, even though they don't necessarily have a lot of lines, most of them, they don't just feel like background extras or whatever to, to have as his leverage between him and the cops. Josh, uh, Frank Pearson, who you mentioned uh, for the writer of this, when he won that Academy Award, he could not accept it because he was directing A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. They took a break to watch the ceremony and then went back and uh, kept filming. And, and we talked about Pearson because he also wrote Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, quite an impressive resume. And I, I suppose if you're going to miss the Oscars, directing A Star is Born is a good reason to do that. You don't think it's uh, a little shallow? 
to miss the Oscars to direct the show. Oh, that song. La, like- la, la, la. I'll leave you. Yeah, that's not in that version. But I will say that is that is like the worst version of A Star is Born of the four of them. Mm, but what's the best? Um, the 54 version, I think the Judy Garland and uh, James Mason version, probably. But yeah, but that uh, one that you are uh, really excellently <laughs> serenading us with is good, too. Hey, Josh, uh, yesterday I was talking to an actress that I work with in uh, the show that I'm in. Uh, and she's 18, and we were talking about The Wizard of Oz. And she said of uh, of the lead actress, Judy Garland, wasn't that girl really famous? <laughs> well, <laughs> she is correct about that. <laughs> I, don't, I think she was like in her 30s when she made that, though, right? And when she made The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, maybe yeah. so. I mean, she definitely played young for a long time. And hey, at least your colleague there has heard of The Wizard of Oz and knew who Judy Garland was being in The Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, look at Josh uh, making making things positive today. I mean, here at Awesome yeah. Movie Year, we are always eager to illuminate people on films that they may not have seen or heard of help them appreciate them. So I feel like that's uh, that goes right along with it, right? You know, and it's just like if you're in a bank robbery and you you, you think the robbers are bad guys, uh, maybe there's some good things about them too. Back right. to Dog Day Afternoon. Back to Dog Day Afternoon. Is that what's happening here? Yeah, I do think you're right. It was Natarillo. Yeah. Sal. Sal Salvatore Natarillo, who I, this is weirdly relates back to like when we were talking about the enigma of Casper Hauser and the yes. casting of Bruno S, who was like in his 40s, playing this character who in real life was 17. And similarly here, John Cazale was 39 and Salvatore Natural was actually uh, 18 years old. In, right. In real One life. difference, though, that we have also mentioned, though, uh, John Cazale was already a celebrated actor, you know, and one of Pacino's favorites. And um, at first, when he came in to read, Lumet was like, no, he or, you know, these guys too old. But then he like read and he's like, no, yeah, yeah he's got the part, you know, so. It's just a little different than Bruno S just being discovered off of a documentary. Right. But I mean, at the same time, I think in both cases, the idea is we have to have this person. They have to play this part because they're so good and they'll fit in perfectly with the movie, even if they don't correspond perfectly to the real person that we're portraying. Right. So this movie, of course, also was highly acclaimed by critics. Roger Ebert said... There are moments when Dog Day Afternoon comes dangerously close to the cliches of old Pat O'Brien gangster movies and the great Lenny Bruce routine inspired by them. But Sidney Lumet is exploring the cliches, not just using them. And he has a good feel for the big city crowd that's quickly drawn to the action. Lumet's film is also a study of a fascinating character. Sonny, the bank robber who takes charge, played by Al Pacino as a compulsive and most complex man. Sonny isn't explained or analyzed, just presented. He becomes one of the most interesting modern movie characters, ranking with Gene Hackman's eavesdropper in The Conversation and Jack Nicholson's Bobby Dupee in Five Easy Pieces. Yeah, you know, last night I was talking to you about uh, how much I love Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces, and We've uh, many times talked about how good Hackman is on this show. So like, just like what a run in the 70s these guys had. Not just, I think, not just because they were such great actors, because of how interesting the projects were and just how um, much artistic 
bandwidth they had to explore these characters. Right, right. And it's great that, you know, now we read that and we think those are two of the great characters of cinema, the great performances of cinema. But Ebert's just citing a couple recent movies that he saw. <laughs> right. From like three years in a row or something like that. Right. Right. So, right. So that's kind yeah. of amazing. Uh, so this is a quintessential New York movie. So two two reviews from New York that talk about that a bit. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, Dog Day Afternoon is Sidney Lumet's most accurate, most flamboyant New York movie. That consistently vital and energetic Lumet genre that includes the pawnbroker and Serpico and exists entirely surrounded by, but always separate from, the rest of his work. Mr. Lumet's New York movies are as much aspects of the city's life as they are stories of the city's life. Dog Day Afternoon is a melodrama based on fact about a disastrously ill-planned Brooklyn bank robbery, and it's beautifully acted by performers who appear to have grown up on the city's sidewalks in the heat and hopelessness of an endless midsummer. If you can let yourself laugh at desperation that has turned seriously lunatic, the film is funny, but mostly it's reportorially efficient and vivid in the understated way of news writing that avoids easy speculation. I mean... You know, uh, I deep dove Sidney Lumet and watched uh, all those movies that were mentioned there. But I think even, you know, 12 Angry Men, um, obviously some later ones, Night Falls on Manhattan. Um, you know, there, he's done a lot of New York movies and he really like really even I was hooked this time from that opening montage where like it's the hot summer day in New York. And I was like, oh, just in two minutes, you've shown me exactly what this this environment is. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It you it's the kind of thing you watch that and you can almost smell the the garbage baking on the side of the sidewalk and you can feel the sweat and it really immerses you in it, which is what you want because you want to be right alongside those characters as they're sitting in the bank and as the tension is building and whatever. And the air conditioning goes out. I mean, we did this with uh, uh, Do the Right Thing also. It just yes. gets it exactly right. Yeah, and I'm sure this is a, a big influence on, on Do the Right Thing. And I will say, uh, is 12 Angry Men set in New York as well? I think it is. Okay, because I mean, I haven't seen that in a little while, but I, I feel like the idea that can be saying here that these New York movies are separate from the other movies. I mean, I don't think, I feel like, it, it, it's a distinctive thing, but that kind of grittiness and the 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 seriousness that Lumet captures. I mean, on your recommendation, I watched The Verdict, which I was not super crazy about, but that is set in Boston. And I feel like it has the same kind of feel as these New York movies as well. And, you know, he can capture that in various locations. Yeah. And I think also, like, you think of like Scorsese as like this all time New York filmmaker, and Lumet is in that category. He, has made some of the best and most accurately portrayed, at least from like a, a feel level of New York City that there is. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Pauline Kael in the New York. Spike Lee too. Spike Lee. Yeah, of course. As yeah. we said, do the right thing. You know, certainly one of the essential New York movies. So Pauline Kael in The New Yorker also addressed this a bit. She said, the most touching element in the film is Sonny's inability to handle all the responsibilities he has assumed. Though he is half-crazed by his situation, he is trying to do the right thing by everybody. His wife and children, the suicidal Leon, the hostages in the bank. In the sequence in which Sonny dictates his will, we can see that inside this ludicrous bungling robber, there's a complicatedly unhappy man, operating out of a sense of noblesse oblige. 
This picture is one of the most satisfying of all the movies starring New York City because the director, Sidney Lumet, and the screenwriter, Frank Pearson, having established that Sonny's grandstanding gets the street crowd on his side against the cops, and that even the tellers are on his side, lets us move into the dark, confused areas of Sonny's frustrations and don't explain everything to us. They trust us to feel without our being told how to feel. Uh, so that sequence where he dictates his will, Frank Pearson was thinking about taking it out of the screenplay or, you know, taking it out. And Lumet said, no, that was the when I read that, that's the reason I wanted to direct this movie. So it's interesting that that gets spotlit here. Yeah, and it is a great sequence. I, I think I saw somewhere else that I mean, it's a long sequence. Right. And that Lumet. I don't think he cut anything from the sequence, but he added in other things like around it in sort of to like balance it out or pad it so that not that there's any padding in this movie, really, but just to so that it didn't seem so, uh, I don't know, like it halted the momentum of the movie, maybe or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, there was um, uh, Lumet wasn't like a director that often used improv, but in this movie, there was a lot of improv and it really brought a real natural, like kinetic feel to it. You know, when that conversation between Sonny and Leon, you know, stuff like that, where they're just talking and, or uh, even the famous Attica scene where uh, Charles Durning said he didn't really know what Pacino was going to do next. And he just had to react naturally to it. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that improv is a major thing. And I think also, what I mentioned before, the idea that they're getting real details from even the minor characters or the minor people involved in this helps with that naturalism because it may be that, you know, oftentimes real people have weirder details in their lives than you might invent to put in a screenplay because they seem unbelievable or something, but you get those little details in there. And this is a very naturalistic feeling movie. It's it's quite impressive in that way. Agreed. So uh, as we've said, I think we'd all seen this. Or Dave, had you seen this before? No, I actually hadn't. It was always on my list, and I'm really glad to finally have gotten around to it. And had you seen any other Sidney Lumet movies? I definitely saw Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Um, I don't think I've seen any of his others, though. You should just watch them all. I really should. This week, so. <laughs> yeah. That's what Jason yeah. did this week. Yeah. But no, I mean, look, I had I had seen, you know, uh, a number of them, but there was, you know, ones that obviously he's a prolific filmmaker, right? You know, yeah. uh, so there was a lot I hadn't watched. And I was like, this is a perfect excuse to watch like five that I hadn't seen and rewatch some that I had seen. And like, it was like one of the great movie weeks of this entire podcast, like when we did Godard or something like that. And I was just like, cool, I'm good for the week. I'm just going to watch this stuff. And I would say of all the movies I've seen from Lumet, this is my second favorite one. And what was your favorite? I think Network is a five star movie and uh, just it's so good even today. Yeah. And I haven't seen that in a while. I, I've seen, I think, five or six other Lumet films. And I did, like I said, watch The Verdict this week because that was the one that I hadn't seen that that you were you were touting. And I was a bit disappointed, but it's still a very well-directed film. And I, I would have loved to have had more time to just watch a bunch of other Lumet movies that I'd never seen before. But that was the one that I was able to fit in this week. But yeah, certainly prolific director. You, I think I didn't, I, I didn't think about how many movies he'd made and how many of them I had seen because he has worked in a bunch of different genres, although we think of him as this kind of gritty New York drama director. He's done a whole range of stuff. And there were so many 
that I, I haven't seen that I would love to get to. Yeah, I think that's a worthwhile expedition and you should do it. And, um, you know, what? I, one of the things that you see in this movie and with Network is just like, you know, these are dramas, but they're so funny in parts, too. Yeah, there's a lot of humor here, as as Vincent Canby points out. I think it's maybe it's morbid humor in a way, but not necessarily. I mean, I think it's just some of those is like the quirky character details, whether that came from the real people or that came from the improv or it came from Frank Pearson, whatever it is, it, it is a very amusing. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that in a little bit. Yeah, let me give you an example, because it is morbid humor, right? Where the FBI agent is checking out Sonny and he goes, hey, he goes, I bet you want to kill me, right? And he goes, uh, he goes, I don't want to kill you, but I'll have to. But if I have to, I'll do it. It's my job. And he, he's like, I don't want the guy to kill me because he has to. I want the guy to kill me to kill me because he wants to. Right? You know, <laughs> it's just such a great line. Right. I mean, so. but it's it's funny, but it is also like it means something. You know, it gives you insight into his character because he's this especially because he's this Vietnam veteran. And of course, if you're, you know, you're at war and you get killed, people are doing that because it's their job, essentially, as as the cop says. And that tells you something about his experience in the military and in war without having to lay it all out for you. I think so. I think that's a good jumping off point for us to come back to. All right. So we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Dog Day Afternoon. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we're talking about Jason's pick, Dog Day Afternoon from Sidney Lumet, which we all liked. But Jason, this was your pick. So is there one particular favorite thing of yours about this film? I mean, you know, uh, a Pacino. Yeah. So let's just yeah. start there, right? Like, I mean, this is, um, I think I, you could argue that this is his best performance ever on film. You know, yeah. And um, when you split like um, Josh and I, we talked before these and we were like, hey, you split Pacino from like the 70s up until like Scent of a Woman where he became big Pacino. Right. And then after and that's like kind of like cruising Pacino and Godfather Pacino and this real like quiet intensity. And then he becomes like explosive, like eat the scenes Pacino, which is also great. We all love it. Like, you know, and then you got like heat. And that's probably like top notch Pacino in that second phase. So these are very different. I remember the first time I watched this, like maybe I hadn't seen as much of Pacino in the 70s. And I was just like, holy cow, like this is this is next level. Like, I don't know where he's at, but like he's just in his own level of performance here. And then they've surrounded him by all these like, I mean, he basically picked the cast, right? Or he and Lumet picked it together and he put a lot of people that he worked with from theater in there. We mentioned Durning and Kazale already. And like, they all elevate each other. Yeah, the acting is excellent across the board. But I, I agree with you. I, I I think maybe I had seen The Godfather and Godfather 2 before the first time I saw this. But certainly, like, you know, we grew up in the era of, if we were seeing a new movie starring Al Pacino, it was all in that big scenery chewing era of Al Pacino. And I'm with you. I think Heat is amazing and he's great in it, but he is doing that big scenery chewing performance. And so I think going back and watching 70s Pacino, whether it was this or Godfather that I saw first, I felt the same way. Like, wow, not only is he amazing in this, but he's amazing in a way that I never realized he could be. 
he brings such sensitivity to this character, you know, those conversations with Leon or even with Sal, like, and I mean, you know, certain roles you think of and you're like, you can't really picture anyone else doing it. We know who the great actors are and were, and like other people could have uh, done this, but also like, I don't know if anyone could have played this part the way he did. And there were times like, you know, he turned this script down a number of times and it was going to be Dustin Hoffman. And what I think would have been right about that is um, they're both short. And I know that sounds weird, but like you look at that physical stature in those long shots where you see all these like big, tough cops and this little dude like dictating how the day is going to go. And it brings so much to the story. And you're just like, man, this guy is like an outsized New York anti-hero, right? And when we're talking about the environment, like you wonder if this took place in a different city, uh, if like the crowds would have just been like, get this guy, you know, F this guy, but it's New York. And like, they love like the anti-hero and the guy who's like sticking it to the system. And it just all works. And, uh, you know, we know that Wadowitz like lived the rest of his life, like leaning into this per- a personality as the dog, you know? Right. And, and who can blame him? Right. I mean, if there's a movie made about your life that becomes as famous and successful and beloved as this movie, you really only have two choices. Either you can try to run away from it and fail, or you can embrace it. Right. Right. And then the other thing, you know, we talk about Lumet and like you watch, you know, if you watch a lot of his movies, you know, we mentioned 12 Angry Men, it's basically a courtroom, the pawnbroker. So much of it takes place in that pawn shop. This is the bank and across the street and just the block. And, you know, yeah, sure, there's some cutaways to apartments, but like he is a master of like moving the camera in such energetic ways. Like, and that really showcases like you never get bored of watching the same room in 12 Angry Men. You never get bored of watching this one city block in. Uh, dog day afternoon. So like, I just think like, you you know, again, we could watch this next week and learn something else and enjoy it in, for the same and different reasons. Yeah. And I was, I mean, I had seen this, but it had been a while. And I think I was a little surprised almost the first time they cut away beyond just, I mean, we see the cops in their sort of command center that they set up across the street in that barbershop. But beyond that, when we cut away to Sonny's wife and kids, in they're sitting outside somewhere and then they're in their apartment and the cops are approaching her or whatever. I was like, whoa, this is, it was almost jarring. And I don't think it's bad necessarily, but you're so immersed in that one place. You don't really expect to ever leave it. Well, and that's, what's so interesting about that opening montage too, right? Like, I mean, it's, I, I, I mean, I was also hooked because uh, Amarina is not really like the most well-known Elton John song. <laughs> and what I had read is that Dee Dee Allen, like temp track that. And then like, when they were going to take it out, he was like, no, no, it's better with that. Like, we're going to leave it. And it's like, he gives you this whole scope of what's going on in New York in that day. So you're going from wide to very close. And then the whole movie is just very close. And sometimes you get these aerial shots. So you're seeing the wide of the very close. And it's just like, I, this guy just got it all right. Like, he just did it. Right. I think that or that opening sequence, he was intending it to have no music. And I think it works really well with that Elton John song. And he was, I assume, thinking of like a, you know, an orchestral sounding score or something that he didn't want there. And I believe, am I remembering this correctly, that this opens with the 20th Century Fox logo, but without the fanfare, just in silence. And then. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So, I mean, you can see how maybe he didn't want even that music to like distract people 
at the beginning, but then we hear that Elton John song. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of describing, like you got these helicopter shots, you got the movement in the bank, which, um, sometimes is very like handheld and shaky and sometimes is, you know, kind of smoothed out and like, um, his, his ability to move from subject to subject in a shot, which he does like in all of his movies so masterfully is like, it's, he's a really singular filmmaker that way. Yeah. And it's got a really good sense of, of space. You really understand where everything is in the bank, where all the people are, including where all the people are when you don't see them, you know, when we're just looking at Sonny or we're looking at Sonny talking to Sal, we always are aware of where are the hostages, where are the tellers, the the manager, et cetera, or where is Sal? Because of course he's the more dangerous one in that he seems really committed to, he will kill these people if it is necessary. And Kazale really conveys that with a performance that is very internal, it's very quiet, but you get the sense that this is a guy who's really on the edge and is really just on the verge of being potentially very violent. Right. Um, you know, two points. One, back to this space. Um, what I had read is that Lumet like found a city block and then they built the bank in there and built everything around that. And that was so smart, right? Because the same way that we talked about Spike Lee is like you built, you have this block and now you can play with that as a real moving organic set. Right. I think also the idea that because it's not a soundstage, that it's not you're shooting exteriors in one location and the interiors in another location. They walk right out the front of the place where they're shooting the interiors and they're on that block where they shot. So there's a fluidity of that motion that you wouldn't get if you do those separately. I think that plus you do get that grimy, uh, you know, kind of feel of New York right there. Kazale, like, dude, you know, uh, I'm glad we're finally getting to talk about him. I don't think we've ever talked about him. Um, you're talking about this, like, real kind of quiet, internalized performance. And I think, like, you know, it 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 wouldn't have worked if they were both the big guys, right? You know, if they, uh, you know, Pacino is definitely uh, intense and quieter than most people would know him in the last few decades, but he still has his big Pacino moments there. Right. He does. He does. I mean, and I think they're more effective because as opposed to, I think, in a lot of his later career performances where it's just big and bigger here, there's more of a range maybe. And so when he does do something more intense, it, you take notice of it more than you would in one of those later performances. I was really impressed with Chris Sarandon too. I know like he's done like a lot of more cult movies after this, and this was his, you know, one Academy Award nomination. But like I watched the documentary about Wardowitz after this called The Dog. And, you know, th that has obviously real footage of the character Chris Randon is playing. And we, we can give away spoilers after this here. But um, he he did it like really, really right. Like it was like, man, he just, he got this character really down. Yeah, he did. And I mean, I guess this is, I mean, spoilers for whatever. <laughs> we never really worry about that. But, you know, one of the things that I think is impressive about this movie is that, you know, that character is what we would now call uh, someone who's transgender, who is, hoping to get these treatments, to get a surgery, uh, gender reassignment. And that's part of the motivation for Sonny doing this bank robbery because he wants to be able to pay for it. And the depiction of people like that in movies from this era, it's not usually great. And I feel like here, they're, it's, it's really sensitive. They're not laughing at this character at all. They take Leon very seriously. And the relationship between Leon and Sonny 
is given just as much emotional weight as any other relationship, including the one between Sonny and his his legal wife, who is the mother of his children. And I love there's one scene where Leon comes in and is very flustered and finally kind of calms down and is telling Charles Durning's character, the main cop, about the relationship with Sonny and Sonny's violent tendencies and all this stuff. And Sarandon is playing it really well and it's it's played seriously. But in the background, there's a cop. And at first for a moment, I was like, oh, is this extra like fucking up or something? Because he's smiling and almost kind of giggling or whatever. But no, it's perfect because then finally he does erupt into a little giggle and Charles Durning just gives him like a look or says one thing and shuts him up. And it's perfect because it's like this cop is like, we don't have time for you to mock this person or whatever. This is serious and we need to pay attention. And I like really like that moment. Yeah. Uh, and Durning, and, you know, home run after home run throughout his career. I, I, you know, if you're a Coen Brothers fan, uh, you know that. But he's just a, a great actor, a great stage actor and film actor. So the, the thing with that also, Josh, is the way that it builds is like, okay, they're robbing a bank. And then he says he wants to talk to his wife. And then you find out that his wife is a man. And then you find out the reason that the ro- he's robbing the bank is to, you know, help pay for this uh, sex change operation. Right. Um, and the way that that builds is so like each reveal is like so effective that way. And it's just uh, again, like they just they just all top level here, all top shelf stuff. Right. And they don't play it cheaply. Again, the movie is not laughing. That one character is laughing. And the movie kind of via Charles Durning is like shutting it down. And I, I I appreciate that. And it allows us in the audience to just be immersed in like, here's a relationship and here are these people that we've come to be interested in, especially in Sonny. And here's a new aspect of that character. And the flip side of that is that Leon doesn't want to talk to Sonny because also in real life, you know, that was a violent relationship. And they said he was volatile and abusive. And so it's not like, oh, here's this bank robber who's just this, you know, hero or anything like that it was a real um you know flawed character a human character and um i think we also see that with the bank tellers which is so funny some of them how they're like why can't you just get this guy what he wants or you know and then the other ones are like you know no he's robbing a bank he's ruining our lives right now you know so really just uh layers on layers on this thing right i think there is because there's a tendency at certain points for us to think oh they're kind of on his side at this point and they like him. And there's one moment where the lead teller, uh, Penelope Allen's character, is asking someone for a cigarette. And Sal is like, do you do you smoke? And she says no. And he's like, well, why do you feel like that this is the time to take up smoking? And she's like, because I'm terrified. And I think that was a moment where you're like, oh, yeah, these people are like, maybe they are trying to put on a, a brave face about it. And she's very brash. You know, her nickname is like the mouth or something like that. Apparently the real yeah. person. Um but, you know, of course she's scared. This guy's pointing a gun at her and has said that he's willing to kill her. So I thought that was a good moment that reminds you of, like, the the complexity of those relationships. Dave, jump in. You're a, you were a first-time watcher here. Yeah, I, I mean, I loved everything about this movie. I, I think you guys covered, like, most of it, honestly. I would just say that phone call with uh, Al Pacino and his wife gives you, like, a another side of him because we've talked about how... Uh, you know, quiet the performances. And that is a moment where he gets to be big Pacino that we'd see later on a decade later in a lot of his roles. And it's a fun moment, you know, for fans of that era, Pacino. I think the um, the biggest, most famous moment is when he comes out and he revs up the crowd because right. 
he thinks the cops are, you know, get, they're pointing the gun at him and he, you know, Attica, Attica, remember Attica. And it's just like, he just is so immersed in that moment, which is, you know, all what acting is, is being present, right? And you could tell like that was, there was nothing else but that moment at that time for him. Yeah. And that's an improvised moment, I think, right? I think so. I'm not sure of that. But um, either way, I feel like it just, I mean, that, there's a reason that's the most famous moment from the the film. Right. And I would, I would say that I think when I first saw this movie, I did not know what he was referring to. And the only thing I knew about Attica was that it was a line from this movie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I feel like it, like it helps to know what it is. But even if you don't, you can kind of just infer something. He explains that well, there was a prison riot in, right. you know, a few years before and that, uh, you know, the whoever the cops and the guards killed both innocent and uh, those participating in the riot. But the other thing, Josh, and we always talk about this is the time when these movies were made. And I know you brought this up a lot on the kind of like Italian movies or uh, movies we watched after World War Two. Right. And I got the same feeling here. This is the middle of Vietnam. No one trusts the government. No one trusts uh, the country. You see how hard it is, like the the stuff of like, this guy's just trying to get by and make a living. And as it's this responsibility and this and this. And like, at this point in time, you really got the feeling of just how, um, you know, down on the idea of the American dream a lot of people were. Right. I mean, and there's explicitly references to Vietnam here, of course, both Sonny and Sal are said to be Vietnam veterans. And, and like I was saying in that, that one scene that you mentioned with between him and Charles Durning, where he says he wants, if someone kills him, he wants it to be someone who hates him. I mean, I think that is reflective of his experience in the war, that these clearly are both people dealing with PTSD. And that is reflected in the way that they handle this situation in the bank. And, and just the general, like you said, the kind of civil unrest or the uneasiness in the country. You know, at one point when Sonny is complaining about how he doesn't have money and I, I think it's the bank manager or someone basically says like, why don't you just get a job? And he's like, oh yeah, why don't I get, just get a job? Sure. Right. You know, like, it, uh, because that's not an option for a lot of people in this. I mean, and now too, but at yeah. all times really, but certainly here as, especially. And you kind of brought this up, but like, there's like, the all these people on the street and there are some who are against him and some who are for him because he's robbed you know he's taking it sticking it to the van but also um you have all these gay activists come out and support him because he you know is gay and everything like that so there's just a lot going on through all of this um a lot to find a lot to pick up here um i i know you know, Wordowitz was a Vietnam veteran. I don't know about Sal because he was 18. Right. Yeah. That was the case. Although but. weren't they sending like, couldn't you be drafted by like age 16 or something? Or am I wrong about that? I thought it was 18, but that, you know. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that was uh, World War II when uh, they didn't care about that as much. I don't know. But you may be, you may be right that he wasn't. But I think it works in the movie to right. make those characters both. And especially because of the casting of Kazale, where this guy is clearly older and he's got that like thousand yard stare where he's seen some shit. Um, it makes perfect sense that they would both be Vietnam veterans. And they have such an interesting relationship, those two, because Sonny is obviously the boss and he seems to be the only one who can get through to Sal on a level that's a little beneath the surface, right? You know, like he talks to him in a very sweet, you know, kind of like nurturing way. Right. And you get the impression that if Sonny wasn't there, that Sal probably would kill all these people very yes. soon. 
Yes. Uh, right. He and he wants to die in his own way. Also. Yeah, he does. I mean, it's tragic. Again, spoilers. It's it's tragic when he gets killed and the cop, the Lance Hendrickson kind of tricks him and, and just shoots him in the head very coldly. But on the other hand, he has said from the very beginning, in fact, he's mad at Sonny. He's like, Sonny, you said that if things went wrong, we would kill everyone and kill ourselves. Like, why aren't we doing that? And Sonny right. is always like, no, 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 we're going to work it out. It's going to be okay. It hasn't gone wrong. Is And as much as it is about him trying to kind of make that happen, I feel like a lot of that is him trying to avoid Sal deciding, okay, now it's time to kill everyone and kill ourselves. Hmm. Well, what a happy note, Josh. Yeah. Uh, well, we could, you want to talk more about the humor? I feel, you know, you brought it up before. Is, are there any other funny moments that you want to mention? Yeah, there's so much funny stuff, especially when like, you know, his mom does come to visit him or when he's on the phone with his wife. Carmen, is it? I think, I think Carmen, Carmen is the real person. I think they yeah. have a different name in the movie. And she's the only person, from what I understood, who was not happy with her portrayal of this film. And I can understand yeah, that. Yeah, she they doesn't really, come off well. Yeah, yeah, she's just the naggy wife, you yeah. know, and that's fair. But but all their conversations are so funny as to, like, you know, no one's really hearing him, right? They're all kind of putting their own, um, I, don't, I guess, shade or their own, like, kind of how this is affecting me. More than like, hey, what's going on over there with you type thing. Right. Um, all that stuff's funny. And um, I just think, you know, there's that like real kind of like you you called it morbid, but like I think it's very, very East Coast blunt, you know, cutting humor in there. Right. Yeah, that stuff is good. I, I thought a lot of the stuff with the tellers was funny. There's a great moment toward the beginning that a small thing that I thought was funny where he's rounding up all the tellers and they go into the bathroom and discover that there's this one teller who's just been in the bathroom the whole time and doesn't even know what's going on. And, and the head teller, she starts complaining, basically, she's like, oh, she always does this. She takes these breaks when she's not supposed to. And then he's like, Sonny's like, okay, get her out of here. And they're, they're, the head teller is grabbing her and she's like, okay, now we're being robbed. <laughs> like She's kind of tell her what the hell is going on. And I just thought that was a very funny little moment and and also when Carol Kane's character, when her husband or boyfriend or whatever calls her on the phone and, and Sonny lets her talk to her and you can hear her like he, you know, she says, oh, he's asking, when is this going to be over? And then she's on the phone telling him like, no, just make something for dinner. Like, so funny. Yeah. It's so funny mm -hmm. that he's helpless and doesn't have, oh, you're in a bank robbery. What am I supposed to do for dinner? Right. And and then, you know, <laughs> we, we mentioned like network before I mentioned it yes. and it's like. Lumet, I think like in the same way, like I think of King of Comedy, like, um, you know, which was like kind of 30 years ahead of its time talking about how the people were so star driven and everything and, you know, obsessed with fame. I think you really get that in network, but you get that here also with like not just the news coverage, but like when the pizza guy comes and he gets the pizzas to him and he's like, I'm a star, you know, <laughs> yeah. so. Um, you really see the obsession with like the that moment of like, quote unquote, your 15 minutes, which is now every minute of every day for everyone. Yeah. Right? Yes. And aren't we so lucky that that's the case? Yeah. So but uh, yeah, all that stuff, you know, getting the pizzas, throwing the money out to the crowd just to like hype them up. Like it, it's just like, yeah, it's an all timer. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, should we give this a rating? Sure, Josh. Do you want to do this out of uh, what do you want to do this out of? Five bank robberies. I mean, that's that the, that's the obvious. Five Atticas. Five. Ooh, five there yeah. you go. Yeah. Five Atticas. So yeah. it gets uh, Attica, 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 Attica. 
four and a half for me. All right, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to give it four. <laughs> it's a great movie. I think I liked it more even this time than the first time I saw it. So Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going with four Atticas. All right, that's good. I'm glad we didn't have to chant Attica uh, <laughs> 13 times or whatever. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Dog Day Afternoon. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about Jason's pick, Dog Day Afternoon. And the legacy of this film, I mean, it it really, not that, people involved in this film weren't successful, but this is certainly a landmark film, I think, for most of the people involved in it. Put your guns down, man. Yeah, uh, good stuff all the way through. I think, uh, like you said, everyone got elevated. And, um, you know, we've talked about uh, Pacino before, obviously. So I just kind of, he's still uh, making babies and making movies, Josh. And good for him. He's a meme sometimes. There was the one where he was like dancing around in the park with his headphones on. He's having a great life, that guy. He's doing it. Um, You know, he's got a lot of stuff coming up. Assassination, which is uh, about the JFK murder as ordered uh, by, you know, a hit from Chicago Kingpin Sam Giancana. Um, and that's uh, David Mamet's new movie. Oof. So, okay, uh, David Mamet. You know, I know uh, not uh, not popular now for a lot of reasons, but uh, you know, he's got a good body of work, Josh, which is what we're talking about here. Yeah, right? I'm not a fan even before his uh, current moment, but that's a topic for another podcast. Okay, well, let me tell you about two other ones. He's doing something called Easy's Waltz, which follows a down on his luck comedian crooner. Navigating modern Las Vegas with old school Vegas personalities, Ooh. Nick Pizzolatto mm. uh, from True Detective. Sounds like something that I was uh, trying to work on, you know, but didn't. And then uh, something called Knox Gets Away about a contract killer who was diagnosed with a fast moving form of dementia, but he has an opportunity to redeem himself by saving the life of his estranged adult son. That's directed by Michael Keaton coming up. Wow. Well, yeah, those sound like interesting projects, especially that Vegas one. I hope those end up happening. You never know. Uh, We were talking about our favorite Pacino performances. We probably talked about this in our cruising episode, so I don't know if there's any we need to mention again. But, you know, that that bifurcation of his career into those kind of two modes and and what's his best in each one, I think, is what we were kind of talking about there. Do you have a favorite you want to mention? Well, I think, you know, we've we've I mean, I told you any given Sunday from the later Pacino years was interesting. I think watching this and Serpico back to back is interesting because these are very, there's something eccentric about both these characters. But honestly, I think this and Godfather 2 are, you know, from the 70s are the, the two. I, I, that's so basic, I know, but whatever. But I so, mean, they're, they're great. Bringing it back to uh, David Mamet, I, you know, I'm a big Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross fan also. I, I know that you are and, and I am not. But the one I might have mentioned this before, too, but the one later performance that I really like a lot is Donnie Brasco, I think is kind of oh, yeah, underrated, he's awesome underrated that, movie. Yeah. yeah. So that's one that I would definitely. That's uh, who directed that? Donnie Brasco. Uh, <laughs> what about Carlito's Way? People love Carlito's Way. Also. I haven't seen Carlito's Way, actually. His, his second De Palma collaboration, of course, Scarface being more famous. But have you seen it? Yeah, and it was it was good. And I know people like really love that movie now. Um, I mentioned to you, I like the stuff he did with Tarantino as a more supporting player once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, and some of that stuff, you you still do get those moments in some of these later performances where he's not just going big the whole time. And it's not all 
Duncachino every time or whatever. So it's nice to have Dunk-a-chino. that reminder. Chino. Donnie Brasco, directed by Mike Newell. Oh, How yeah. about that? Kind of a kind of a journeyman filmmaker, Mike Newell. But uh, I mean, you got four weddings and a funeral, and Harry Potter in there. Right, so. exactly. He's one of these guys that just kind of shifts from one project randomly in a different genre to another. But I again, I think that's an underrated movie, Donnie Brasco. So. You're saying it's not a fugazi. Thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, Jason, you're now the world's foremost Sydney Lumet. Yes, expert, number so. one historian on <laughs> yeah. Sydney Lumet. Hire me at your college, and I'll teach the class. So, watch all the movies. Watch them all. Yeah, you know? I, so. I I agree. I'd like to watch more. And I mean, he had such a long career too. I mean, Dave mentioned before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which was his final movie in 2007. Which is, I remember, I really liked that when I saw it in the theater. And I mean, that was the capper of this incredibly long career, five Oscar nominations for best director, did not win any of those, but he did get an honorary Oscar in 2004. And I know, Jason, I was curious to see Night Falls on Manhattan, which was one that you mentioned that was a favorite of yours. That's kind of a not one of the most well-known films. I like that. I, I saw that in the theater. Um, I like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead also in the theater i like everything i've watched from this dude and i want to watch more like there's so many more to watch also i read his book making movies which um i know is a big influence on a lot of filmmakers i remember george clooney talking about reading that book and then just doing stuff like setting up a very long intricate shot that you're never going to use and doing it in one take and then moving on just to keep the crew on their toes knowing like hey this dude's not effing around and like you better be ready to bring your best at every uh, moment of this filming process. Hmm. I'm not sure if George Clooney and Sidney Lumet as directors necessarily. Uh... I'm just saying I remember that. But yeah. Making movies, Sidney Lumet, really good book. Right. I'm sure it is. And George Clooney, really good actor. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I, I remember a filmmaker I know telling me he read the book and what he got out of it was um, when you go to lunch at a movie, you take a piece of meat and you take cheese and you make a cheese roll and you just eat that. And then you got 55 minutes to do whatever you want afterwards. You can take a nap. That's your lunch. One meat cheese roll. That sounds like what I do. That's keto. <laughs> yeah. Sydney Lumet is a keto pioneer. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I didn't realize he did The Wiz. I loved that movie back in the day. I haven't seen it in 20 years at least. But... Yeah, I haven't seen it either. But that's what I'm saying with that range. You know, there's a big... Uh, elaborate musical and he made comedies and I mean he made a lot of these gritty dramas and a lot of crime movies and stuff that he's known for but a whole range of other things as well yeah when we talked about Cassavetes at Gloria um, you know he remade that which was not his most highly regarded film obviously with uh, Sharon Stone but but, you know he went out on a high I think with uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead I think was his last film right and I remember when that came out it was like oh Lumet is back this is you know just as good as his early work and then it turned out to be his last movie but that was certainly something that was appreciated at the time Um, I'm excited to dig into those movies in the 80s that are maybe lost in the Lumet catalog that are tougher to find that I wasn't able to get to in this past week, but there's a lot of them that I'm I'm going to continue to watch, Josh. Yeah, you could do a whole uh, Lumet month or something, probably. Ooh, one month out of a year. Awesome Lumet month. Sure. That's there a new podcast go. we're doing. So, cool. <laughs> right after Feel the Burns and yeah. Burns. Yes. Month. Thank you for bringing Josh, that up. Josh, I... Uh, I uh, I did watch the doc, uh, John Wadowitz's documentary. He is very charismatic. 
Uh, he loves talking about all the sex he has with different people. He loves being the dog. My favorite of his plans was uh, Dog's Disco Limousine, <laughs> where he couldn't get a license, but he wanted to have be a limo driver and drive people around and just be like the dog and have disco music playing. But um, he died. Uh, he was 60. He died of cancer. He was on welfare at the time, living with his mom. Uh, so not a happy ending, but, um, he served seven years for this crime and then went back for another three year stretch, uh, for a parole violation. But it really seemed to love his, uh, outlaw persona. Yeah. I mean, and that is, I guess, a sad ending, as you said, but he did get that notoriety that he seemed to have wanted out of this film. And it, it worked out for him for at least for a little while. Um, one thing that I also love that worked out for this film related to the real person is that, as we said, part of the motivation for this bank robbery was to pay for that gender reassignment surgery, which of course did not work out in the bank robbery because the bank robbery was foiled. But then what happened was that Wadowitz was paid for his life rights for the film, and he gave that money to uh, Elizabeth Eden, which was was uh, her eventual name, and she used that to get the surgery. So it kind of worked out in a, in a poetic way. Yes, but if you watch the dog, it sounds like she didn't lead a very happy life. True. And um, she ended up dying from complications from AIDS in 1987. So sad stuff there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of what's talked about, uh, you know, just how much uh, this movie was important. And he got the warden to show it to the prisoners when he was in jail because no one believed that they were actually making it. And uh, all this stuff. Um it seems like that his ex-wife, uh, Carmen, you know, moved on from him and seems to have had maybe the most fulfilling life out of the group. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, that, that seems right. But uh, we mentioned you said, uh, John Cazale, that, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk about him, although we talked about Michael Cimino in our Heaven's Gate episode. And of course, the deer hunter is one of Cazale's big roles. Amazingly only ever in five movies, all of which were nominated for Best Picture, which is one of the great like movie yeah. movie trivia per Perfect bits. game. Yeah. He pitched a perfect game. Wow. Yeah. So. Uh, the two Godfathers, or the first two Godfathers, rather, The Conversation, this film, and The Deer Hunter. And I mean, of course, it's, it's amazing, but it's also sad because the reason for that is that he died in 1978 of cancer. Presumably, he would have much preferred to have had a longer life and a longer career and have starred in a bunch of crappy movies and be alive. But it's... It is still an amazing run. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at that, you're, you know, three with Coppola, one with Lumet and one with Chimino, right? And the right one with Chimino. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I mean, you would have assumed that he, I mean, God, this guy would have been a natural in the Scorsese movie or, you know, he was a theater actor. Um, you know, he probably would have made a lot of great movies too. Well, so. sure, of course. But I mean, no one, no one has that kind of track record if they have a longer career. Right. It's very sad. There was that documentary on HBO, um, which, um, it's not easy to find stuff on anymore since they switched over. <laughs> Max. Um, yeah, uh, it was, I know the subtitle was rediscovering John Cazale. I watched that. That was a good documentary. Oh yeah. I'm not heard of that, but that sounds interesting. I mean, a lot of great character actors. We mentioned Charles Durning and Chris Sarandon as two, both of them very prolific character actors. Durning was actually nominated for a couple of Oscars. And as you said, I remember him mainly from Coen Brothers films, especially Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But uh, I know you're a big Muppet movie fan. Wasn't he a, a big part yeah, of that? Yeah, he's Doc Hopper. He's great as Doc Hopper there. Um, yeah, Durning, uh, he's a legend, man. You know, he uh, 
had Academy Award nominations for Best Supporting Actor, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and To Be or Not to Be, a World War II decorated um, veteran, and he won the Drama Desk Award for that championship season, The Gin Game, and uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I think all three of those were either Drama Desk or Tony nominees or winners. Yeah. And I, I like this little detail that he also starred in a TV movie in 1980 called Attica about the Attica prison riots. There you go. So Golden Globe for the Kennedys of Massachusetts. Yeah. Kennedy. We remember him on uh, Rescue Me also. That too. Yeah. I mean, what a range of stuff right there. Amazing. Like, and that is only a tiny fraction of all the stuff that he did in his yeah, career. Yeah. I, I love him in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I love him in the Muppet movie. So those would be the two. Obviously, Josh, I just looked it up. The, um, the Kazale documentary, of course, had to be called I Knew It Was You. But you did not know it was the title. I didn't, but now I do. Yes. And I put that, I've imparted that information to you as Thank well. Thank you for that. Um, Chris Sarandon, uh, still working in various capacities. Um, I always remember- Susan Sarandon's first husband. He yeah. is, he is, yeah. But that was, uh, they have not been married in quite a long time. But I always remember him from the original Child's Play but he's also known for Fright Night and, of course, The Princess Bride. I think those are probably the most high-profile things that he's been in. And the, night, the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, as the voice. But I think not the singing voice of the main character in that film. Yeah. So, probably right. Frank Pearson, as we said, A Star is Born, Cool Hand Luke, major screenwriter and director as well, even though, I, again, that's the worst version of A Star is Born unfortunately. It's so long. Oh, I didn't see it. But you got all these guys, like we said, that um, Pacino had worked with before, you know. Um, Penelope Allen was in uh, Scarecrow and then later looking for Richard. Um, you had Marcia Jean Kurtz, who was in A Panic on Needle Park, and she won an Obie Award. And then you have all these kind of cool character actors, like you mentioned, Lance Henriksen, Dominic Cianese, and Carol Kane in there. So Good stuff, all in all. Yeah, it was cool to see. I mean, this is one of Lance Henriksen's first roles, and it's a small part, but I didn't remember. And I, when he showed up, I was like, is that Lance Henriksen? Wow, like all the people in this. And, you know, Carol Kane, who we still think of mostly doing these kind of goofy comedic roles. And, um, you know, she does get to be a little comedic, as we said in that uh, conversation, but just playing a, a straight supporting role here. I think we talked about her in Annie Hall and how good she is. She so, is great, yeah. Know. And she's good here in that small role, so... Uh, Lastly, Josh, I wanted to mention James Roderick, who played the FBI agent Sheldon, uh, Family Alice's Restaurant, and uh, The Iceman Cometh on TV. Yeah, and he's, I mean, they're all good. I, again, I think that comes from, like you said, the casting of it and Pacino getting these people that he worked with in theater. And you get the sense that they all gelled as this ensemble, not just individual good performances. Right. And then not just that, you got this like murderer's row of, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Um, Victor J. Kemper, Josh, we might have talked about not only the DP here, he was the DP of Slapshot. So that was exciting. Nice. Yeah. But he also did like crazy. He did everything from like National Lampoon's Vacation to Tommy Boy, The Jerk, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Mikey and Nikki, just a crazy Mr. Mom, just a really, really varied career. Yeah, that is amazing. And Dee Dee Allen, one of the most famous film editors ever, I think. I think we talked about her with Bonnie and Clyde. And then, you know, you got The Hustler, you got Reds, a lot, a lot of good stuff. Indeed, indeed. So uh, that's, a, that's a lot. Anything else on the legacy of this film you want to talk about? Uh, Attica. Thank you for that. <laughs> Dave, anything to add? Uh, Attica. Okay, <laughs> I figured. All right, well, that is Dog Day Afternoon. And that 
is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Josh, I got one more fun fact for you if you want if you want yeah, it. Yeah, let's hear it. This marked the fourth year in a row that Al Pacino was nominated for an Acting Academy Award. Godfather, Godfather 2, uh, and in between those two was Serpico, and after Godfather 2 was this. Pretty good. Pretty good is an understatement <laughs> for those four films. Yes, indeed. So that is Dog Day Afternoon, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can rob us on social media and online. You sure can. We're at awesomemovieyear.com. We'd prefer just, uh, you know, negotiating much like uh, Charles Durning and Al Pacino did in this film. Mm -hmm. uh, awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. You can also find me at Eat This Comedy and go for Jason on Letterboxd, uh, where you'll see a lot of Sidney Lumet movies recently covered there. Yeah, get Jason's thoughts on all of those films. Some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. Newer things at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, where I only recently watched one uh, additional Sidney Lumet film. But you can find my star rating for it if you care to. Mm. <laughs> and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check out my letterbox at by David Rosen. Yes, indeed. Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Josh, the impressions probably stop here because next week we are covering a Hungarian film called Adoption. As we do sometimes in our older seasons, we find different film festivals to cover since Sundance wasn't around. This won the Berlin Film Festival. Golden bears all around, baby. So tune in next time for Adoption. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.